0: Welcome to Danny Goldberg's
1: Rock and Rolls Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection, and we are dependent on you, our community, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com Danny and either click on the Donate button or bookmark the Amazon link through which we get a small percentage of all your purchases. Your support will allow Danny to continue his captivating talks and interviews. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg, and this is Rock and Rolls. And today I have two old friends. David Silver, who many of you know from Mind Rolling and many other podcasts, has joined me to talk to Sarah Davidson, who we've both known since the 70s. One of the things we really want to talk to her about is her recent book, The December Project. But first, I just want to describe a little bit about Sarah's illustrious background. Starting as a reporter for the Boston Globe, wrote for many magazines, including the Atlantic Monthly, Esquire, Harper's Life, New York Times Magazine, Rolling Stone, among others. She became very well known for her novel Loose Change and uh, which was also made into a TV miniseries uh, more recently she wrote a wonderful book about her close friend Joan Didion and she had a period of producing television shows such as Doctor Quinn Medicine Woman I first became aware of you Sarah though when you started writing about Ramdas and since a lot of people who you were one of the first legitimate journalists, I think, possibly the first one to cover his uh, odyssey from Richard Albert to Ram Dass. And t- tell us about how, how that happened and what that was like and, and, and how it's continued to affect you.
2: Well, it almost ruined my career. <laughs> I had just was just kind of making um, uh, a name for myself as a freelance magazine writer for Harper's and Esquire and other magazines. And then I read Be Here Now. And I had always been an agnostic uh, skeptical. I had a sister who was very into yoga and I thought it was just I needed to <laughs> to correct her from this crazy thing she was doing but I did have that sense I was becoming successful I, I was married to somebody who was who was famous and I had everything that it seemed like uh, life life's surprises, And I was miserable. I was depressed. I was frightened. I was so scared every time I had to write another article. And then I read Be Here Now, and Richard Alpert described himself the way I felt. He called himself a neurotic Jewish overachiever. And it just, you know, hit the bullseye. That was me. And I was, as he described himself, as a professor of psychology at Harvard and being miserable and having to throw up every time before he gave a a speech, I mean, excuse me, before he lectured to his class. I so identified with that. And then I read about his awakening in India, and it just stirred my curiosity because I could relate to that. It wasn't spacey. It was a really smart, funny guy who was talking about what I felt. And I knew, I remember one night... I went to dinner with my husband's father who was a broadway composer and he was saying oh it's wonderful i loved your article and after this there'll be more articles and more books and i remembered thinking and then what because mm. it, none of it was bringing me any satisfaction or joy or peace of mind so that since ramdas had attained this peace of mind that i was looking for i immediately thought i want to interview this man
1: Now, part of his particular thing was not only being a Harvard professor and going to India. In between, he did a lot of LSD and was very well known for that. Had you uh, done psychedelics at that time yourself? I
2: think I had. I mean, I went to Berkeley in the sixties. I, 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 I was. I tried marijuana. I did LSD a couple times. LSD wasn't as big a thing for me as marijuana was. Um, but that wasn't what drew me to him. What drew me to him was the idea that he was was suffering. He had been suffering from the same thing I was suffering from, and I was in therapy, and that wasn't helping. And he had attained this incredible peace and equanimity, or so he wrote. So that was what I wanted, and I got an assignment from Esquire magazine to do a profile of him. And at the time, he was still in India, and I joined a group group, that i know you're familiar with a meditation group at hilda charlton's in uh, new york and they were they were all ramdas fans and i heard the rumors that he was in india he was going to um london for a while to to and then he might be back here or nobody really knew for sure but i wrote a letter to him telling him my reaction to his book and my desire to do the interview and he wrote back and said, I'm I'm here and there these days, but if you can find me, you'll have me. <laughs> so one of the people at Hilda's said called me one night and said, he's here, he's in Boston. <laughs> I was on a first plane to Boston the next morning, and I showed up at his father's house where he was staying. And knocked on the door. I woke the whole household up, but I was so afraid that if I didn't get there right away, he'd be off to the next place. Mm -hmm. And he answered the door and I said, you said if I could find you and here I am. So he invited me in and we spent the next two days doing these interviews and also doing some personal processing and work. Mm And um, I just left in a completely different state of mind. And that was, and I, so I wrote up the article thinking this was the most important article that I'd ever written yet in my career. And I turned down an assignment from the New York Times to go to Cuba to interview Fidel Castro on his 40th birthday. And my husband at the time thought I was absolutely insane uh, to turn down Castro for who, Ram, who, what. But I I did it, and I was so proud of this piece, and I turned it in, and the editor of Esquire said, I think, why don't you come in and see me in my office? And I knew that was trouble. Mm. And he said, we can't publish this piece, and you will thank me that we didn't, because his ideas are incomprehensible, and your willingness to accept them is going to destroy your credibility as a journalist. Wow. And I just went home and sank into a funk... And uh, nobody else wanted the piece either, none of the other magazines I'd written for. And finally, like three or four months later, um, a friend I knew who was working for Ramparts, which was a political magazine. right? And he called and asked me, what are you doing? And I said, well, I just spent four months working on a piece nobody will publish. And he said, send it to me. I'll publish it. I said, I don't think so. This is about spiritual things. And Ramparts is is on the other side of the fence and they ended up publishing it and um that was my first exposure to Ramdas and I was to write about him several more times right uh through his life and his career and um he's all you know you all they say you never forget the first boy you kissed you never forget your first spiritual teacher mm. and and he was yeah.
1: that yeah so did it so it did not somehow ruin your, your career?
2: Well, it changed it, let's put it that way, yeah. because I had made a reputation being very sarcastic and cynical and cutting people and I, I wrote a famous piece about Jacqueline Suzanne that made fun of her and and you know, I couldn't do that kind of writing anymore. Mm. I I when you once you start honoring the God in everybody, uh it's it's hard to be that kind of writer. So I only wrote about things I felt positive and enthusiastic about.
0: You know, Sarah, you have, you made that change, that pivot at that time, but it's my sense that in the years since then, when you have written about spiritual things, you've had a penetration that very few people have who write about spiritual things, having read millions (laughs) of things about it. So to me... You've walked that line very well since then. No, you haven't been downright negative or critical or this unless there was something bogus that you were talking about. But the way you write about the inner world, or the inner life is still extremely um, what's the word? penetrating, cutting, not bad cutting, but getting <laughs> to the core.
2: Well, thank you. you. Know,
0: you know, well, I, that's why I love your work, because when you read it that's the part of me that I'm the most <laughs> concerned about, which is my deep skepticism, which has not gone yeah. away. I come from a
2: it never socialist goes agnostic family <laughs>
0: in England, you know, and religion to me was balderdash, and I, I was contemptuous about it until um, until I took LSD, actually, for me. That was the turning point. Mm. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that there's a way of, of entering the spiritual world or at least the the world of spiritual communicative objects articles that is not just boring and sappy
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you, very few have done that now,
2: well i have to tell you yeah. that after i had this experience with ramdas that changed the way i felt about the spirit I felt like there was a big hole in my background. I hadn't read anything, uh, and I started reading and found that there were a lot of very smart philosophers and intelligent people who had written about spirituality. That uh, So I was like, I, I gave myself a crash course to satisfy myself that you could be a thinking, independent person and still have a life of the Spirit.
1: What were your favorite ones?
2: Um... I actually can't remember the name of the psychologist who wrote that. That um, that it's William James. That that was the big one for me. He was a Harvard psychologist and wrote that there was a, a thin film between the thinking mind and this other world that uh, that was there. And of course, you know, there was the famous line in Hamlet: "There is more to your philosophies than are no there is more." Anyway, I don't remember it, but you know what I'm talking more about. More than what we know, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something else out there.
1: So um, just before, because I really so much want to talk about the more recent book, but I, I, I want to just dwell for a minute on you sort of continuing to have this dual citizenship between uh, the the uh, New York-centric um, and later Hollywood-centric uh, you know, media intellectual world and uh, an open heart to the things that Ramdas has talked about, his love for his guru, for example, and and you can't really think about Ramdas without thinking about Nimkaroli Baba, his guru, and how he radiates love for his guru. And at the same time, most people that are not devotees or re- religious people look at the whole guru thing as as something between delusional and a scam. And how how have you navigated? being who you are with these two parts of yourself?
2: Well, for many years, many years after that experience at Esquire magazine, I did not write about it mm. at all. I didn't go there. Right. Uh, I'd say for at least 10 years. And then when Loose Change, when I wrote that, I did have a chapter in the end about my meeting Ram Dass and the changes that it, that it, it wrought in me. And, you know, I kind of have kept them separate Because uh, the New York world of publishing, the gatekeepers, they they do not let any spiritual work through. Uh, A lot of spiritual books become bestsellers, but they don't get reviewed. And my last book, The December Project, was the first book I've written that did not get reviewed in The Mm. New York Times because it was about a spiritual subject. So at this point, I don't care. But I, I was very aware that I had to... Had to have to kind of have two lives.
1: Well, I want to talk about the December project. That was really the main catalyst for wanting to do this for both David and I. And so, tell us, tell us about the rabbi that who he is, what his movement was, your experience with him, and and the essence of, of of the book.
2: Right. Well, the December project is about the two years that I spent in weekly conversation with a rabbi called Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi who, along with another rabbi and friend, Shlomo Karlebach, founded the Jewish Renewal Movement.
1: And what is the Jewish Renewal Jewish
2: Movement? Renewal, well, first of all, Reb Zalman was born in Vienna. Uh, he barely escaped the Holocaust. He, His whole family, his father uh, amazingly had a knowing that he had to get out of Austria uh, and his brothers and the rest of his family thought it would, they went back to Poland, where they'd been born, and they thought that was safe because it wasn't un, yet under Hitler, and they all perished in the Holocaust, except for Reb Zolman and his family. He was 15 when he landed in New York, and he'd heard about the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Brooklyn, who had also escaped. Uh, he had gotten diplomatic sources to help him get out of uh, Poland and get to the America, where he wanted to replant Judaism in a free soil. And Reb Zalman studied with him. He was—he felt absolutely loved and understood by this rabbi who was head of the Lubavitcher movement, which is a very um, orthodox, uh, strict, and yet it is centered around the same devotion that Ramdas felt. It's, a, it's all about knowing God through prayer and singing and dancing and ecstasy. Uh, it was actually, the Lubavitcher sect was founded, the original founder of it said that he who, 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 who prays sincerely to God is on the same level, if not higher, than the Talmudic scholar who can cite this and that. So it was all about the heart. And it totally captured Reb Zalman. He loved it. He loved the Rebbe. Um, And he was ordained as Lubavitcher Rebbe. But he was curious. He had a very seeking and questioning mind. And so he started at an early age reading all the kinds of books that were forbidden within his narrow community. Books on philosophy, psychology, books by other Rabbis that weren't condoned by this particular sect. And he wanted to know what was going on outside the narrow community where he had grown up and been ordained. And at the same time, the 60s were exploding. And he was sent to college campuses to try to connect with all the young Jews who were pursuing Buddhism and yoga. Why didn't they see what there was in their own tradition? And he ended when he heard about. Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary experimenting with LSD, he said, I want it in. And he actually took LSD with Timothy Leary and had this amazing experience where he realized that all religions go to the same place, that the divine, the way he puts it is the divine wears different masks to communicate with different people. And for Christians, what he said was, the law gone to the infinite is Jesus Christ. And for Jews, it's a Torah with a crown, but everyone is going to the same place. So he became a universalist. And he he was constantly meeting these young Jews who just couldn't bear what they had experienced as, as their Jewish upbringing. Uh, it was soulless. There was no talk about spirit and God. It was just about the Holocaust and how it should never again happen, which was important. But, but there was no feeling. There was no the way. How you describe it is: they go to to temple, and the rabbi prays, and the cantor sings, and they're the audience. He wanted Judaism to be participatory. He wanted everybody to have a direct their own experience of the divine. And so he decided one night he had an epiphany out in the out in the field under the stars, that what the Lubavitchers were doing, which was trying to replant Hasidism into American soil was never going to take. I mean, it was too, you know, it required that women cover their heads and shave their hair uh, uh, off, and it required so many things.
1: Rejection of modernity.
2: Yes, um, that he knew it wasn't going to take. And so he said what we need, not a revival of the Judaism of the shtetl, but we need a renewal of Judaism that makes it relevant to this moment in this day. So he founded the Jewish Renewal Movement where, for the first time, men and women prayed together because in his sect they were separate. He recognized, he had a strong love and belief in women and their power and what they had to contribute. And he, he just experimented with ways to make it new and make it real. I mean, he would do things like he would turn off all the lights and ask people to dance in the dark with God. Um, he sometimes had strobe lights going he once led a passover seder where people took four puffs of marijuana instead of four glasses of wine and he was uh, he was kicked out of the lubavitcher movement <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and but he but he's he he affected so many thousands of people he toured the country constantly he went to traditional synagogues and led a shabbat weekend where it was different than anything they did. He was always trying to do things that would shock them and wake them up and give them this direct experience of, of the divine. And he was open-minded. You know, he said, if your idea of observing Shabbat is to mold clay on a, on a potter's wheel and that's your way to find experience the divine, do that. You didn't have to just do the prayers and follow the rituals that had been set down so long. Although he himself always did cling to his strict observance, even though he allowed his followers to observe it as it was meaningful to them. So I had met him first in the 70s when somebody told me that, you know, I should go see this rabbi. He was then in Long Island. He was leading some kind of retreat. And he said, he's he's a Jew you'll really connect with. And I did. And there was an immediate kind of bond, a kind of recognition. You know, how sometimes you meet somebody and you just know you're going to be close and friends and you're you're birds of a feather as it were. So we stayed in touch over the years. I was a reporter and every time I ne- I needed a quote on something that vaguely touched on his field, I would call him because I knew he would give me something startling and shocking. He was a, he he gave great quotes. And then I found myself in Boulder um uh later in my life, um, I moved there about ten years ago and he was then the he had the World Wisdom Chair at Naropa University, which is a Buddhist university. He'd also been made an honorary sheikh in the Sufi movement. And so I looked him up, we reconnected, and About six years ago, he published many, many books in his lifetime, and he was having a book party, a book, reading at the local bookstore, and I went. I always went when he was doing anything. And the house was packed. I mean, by this time, he had such a following from 30, 40 years of traveling and turning people on and ordaining new rabbis and starting this movement, and they were all passionate, and he was their rebbe. So the bookstore was packed, I had to sit on the floor, and he started out by chanting a nagoon, a wordless hymn. And as he had this beautiful baritone voice, and as he was chanting, this wave of joy and delight just kind of moved through the room and swept me up in it. And when he was done with the book reading, I went up to him and impulsively said, Reb Zalman, I know you're working on your archives at the University of Colorado, and I'm between books right now, which any writer will tell you is not a place you like being. <laughs> <laughs> I'm between books. And, I, and if there's anything I can do to support you, let me know. I did not expect to hear from him. He, the world wanted him, and his wife acted as the gatekeeper. And I was surprised when he woke me up the next morning at 8, and he said, Sarala. he always called anybody, he added Allah to their name. You would be Danila. He would be Davila. He said, Sarala, there is something I want to do with you. I want to have a series of conversations about what I'm calling the December Project. He was in his mid-80s and he had many health issues. And he said, when you can feel in your cells that you are getting near the end of your tour of duty on this earth, what is the spiritual work of that time? And how do we prepare for the mystery that's coming? Well, I wasn't really interested in the topic at that time. I was more interested in how I could keep my career still alive and still write books. And but I would have I would have taken any excuse to spend time with him. So we began meeting every Friday. I called it my Fridays with Reb Zalman. And uh, we talked about it, and for for over two years and. I'm talking on and on if
1: you no, minutes. this is exactly <laughs> what I think David and I want you to do, so please stay in the zone
2: so it, it was he was a very tough interview. I mean, I'm a journalist. I appeared every Friday with a list of questions and at my tape recorder, and I've had my laptop open, and he says, "Okay, Sarah what do you want to talk about today?" And I said, "Well, will you define what is the December work and for months, he never defined it. He would talk. He never answered a question directly. He would tell you a story. He would sing a song. He would remember something that reminded him of something else. Now, I am very good at lassoing people back to the question I've asked, but he could not be lassoed. He would just go on and on about what he wanted to talk about or what came to him. He was very spontaneous. And when I left, we had barely gotten beyond question one or two. However, Every session at some point in his wanderings here and there would result in this gem of wisdom uh, that was startling, that was that came out of left field, and it was so beautiful that I just decided to uh, let, let him run. And after two years of this, I had all of this stuff all over the place, and I couldn't imagine how I could ever find a narrative to make a book about it. So I, I, I went to Hawaii, and I rented a place for a couple weeks. And I said, this is, this is, I'm either going get, to get, find a way to write this book, or it's going to stop. You know, it's been two years now. And I immersed myself, in. I listened to the tapes. I had taken notes. I'd, I had transcribed them, and I had made an index of when he talked about what, where. And I really saw the arc of how I could tell the story and once I saw that I started writing and it 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 just went very fast.
1: Now, my recollection is as with the Ramdas article, you had a hard time getting someone to publish this as well, yes?
2: Oh, yes, thank you for reminding me not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think totally it's inspiring. Repressed
1: that. I think it's inspiring to people who you know have the guts to kind of go down this path and 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 it's not one that's always welcomed in the conventional media and no. somehow you've been able to for, for somehow or other yes, get these well, things well as it out happens you
2: read the draft that everybody was turning down right and
1: <laughs> and I loved it I will you say you know
2: I, I wrote it on spec because I couldn't get a contract in advance because I didn't even know that I could write a book until I wrote it so then I wrote it and I did many drafts, and I got a friend to help me edit it. And then I arrived at a manuscript I was happy with, and Re- Reb Zalman was happy with it. And I gave it to my agent, who thought it would be an, e- who thought it would be an easy sell because it was already done. And you know, Tuesdays with Maury had been so successful. The last lecture uh, by Randy, something I can't remember his name, about a lecture he gave when he was about to die, had been a bestseller. And she thought it would just be snapped up, and instead it was turned down and turned down and turned down. I think by over twenty people, and I was in despair. Um, and and they kept saying, "We don't want." Because I the book intersperses our conversations and what we come up with about how to handle the things that happen when you're getting older and how to face the ultimate. But I interspersed it with with chapters about his life because his life was amazing uh, he was He was present during the Holocaust. at every major moment of the twentieth century, he was there and during and he was active in the sixties uh, you know he 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 had been divorced by then and and uh, he took advantage of the sexual revolution and the drug revolution and the culture revolution. He had been present for all of this, and so, and, and all of it was, it was fascinating. So I was alternating chapters about his life and chapters about our meetings, and the response I was getting from all these publishers is, "Why does she have all those all these chapters about him? Who cares about him? Maybe she should take it out and just be about, you know, make it more like Tuesdays with Maury where he, he just tells you how how to die well or how to whatever." And my agent started ragging me to change the book. And I just didn't want to do it. It was the book I felt to write. And I was happy with it. And I thought his life would, you had to know about his life in order for his words to make, to mean something. Right. So I was just at my wits end, And finally, I said, why don't you submit it to Harper San Francisco? It's now called Harper One because they specialize in spiritual books. The reason she hadn't is because they don't pay anything. Right. There were other Jewish places I was about to suggest that she s- send it to, Jewish publishers that don't pay anything either. So she sent it to Harper, and oddly enough, all of the editors had turned who had turned it down in New York were Jewish, and the editor at Harper who bought it was a Chicana woman from Central America who loved it and totally identified with him and his work, and we had a really good collaboration. So... But thank you for reminding me. I I repressed it.
0: (laughs) One of the things that struck a huge chord with me, I mean, you gave him a hard time just like they gave him, but a good hard time. In other words, you debated a dialectic with him, which really struck a chord. And One of the things that I want to bring up is that when people say to me, the bromide, um, you know, you're just a drop in the ocean and think of it like that, I get more freaked by that than anything that everybody would say. And you used the word boring, or I think he said that you used the word boring. And he comes back to that in, in the book. And I want you to just talk about that for a minute, because when I read that, I thought, oh, I'm not alone in this. I'm not a complete idiot, <laughs> you know, which is what a book should do sometimes. Because sometimes I just think all these people I'm surrounded by in these yoga classes and meditations and God knows what that I find myself in, they all love this dropping in the ocean. I don't want to be a drop in the ocean. Thank you very much. They say, well, you're not a drop. You're the ocean. No, I'm not. I'm me now. What am I then? Could you just expand upon yes. that a little bit, please?
2: Well, Rev. Zalman knew that I was a seeker who who owned a skeptical mind. I mean, my heart from the very beginning with Ram Dass, my heart wants to travel any road if it might bring me peace, understanding, closer to the divine, whatever that is. But then my mind comes along and pokes holes in all that. I can't stand. There's no theology that my mind doesn't tear apart. Mm. There's no description of the afterlife that, I've, that I don't tear apart you know, some people say they're channeling people who who died two centuries ago. How can they be channeling them if they're supposed to be becoming a drop in the ocean? Right. You, you know, yeah. and, and I I always took reincarnation because Reb Zalman did believe in reincarnation, and I told him I didn't. I see it as a wonderful metaphor. But Mm. the actuality, first of all, whenever anybody talks about reincarnation, they always remember being a princess or a warrior. (laughs) Nobody remembers being a child molester or a leper. (laughs) And yet, if it's true, you're going to be all of that. And anyway, to me, it was a great metaphor that there is everything in us. Um, You know, I think Thich Nhat Hanh had a wonderful poem that he said, I am the murderer and I am the murdered I am I am everything and everything is in me but so you're right when in, in fact when he d- described how he couldn't he was so interested in the in the in the passage he said I want to be awake for it you know woody allen said famously I don't mind dying I just don't want to be there when it happens <laughs> and he said I do want to be there I want to be wide awake I want to yeah. whisper the shema as it with my last breath I want to become a drop in the ocean. And I said, that sounds really boring, just being a drop and floating around all day. (laughs) And he said, there is more in my drop than you have in your current being. And we were always in this back and forth because he knew my heart was there, but my mind wasn't. And in fact, one time, I didn't put this in the book, but we actually smoked marijuana together. He wanted to do this, and I was delighted to do it. Mm. And I didn't write it in the book for all kinds of reasons. But um, And anyone who reads the book will see this conversation. I just didn't say that it was a stone conversation. Mm. And what he said to me was, he said, you know, for a moment, I want to talk to Sarah's mind. Is that okay? Mm. <laughs> And I and he, he and he and I said absolutely. And he said because I want to tell you something. I care for this woman, and I really want the best for her. But if you're going to stand in the way, I'm going to have a tough trouble getting through. So, huh. so I'm just asking you to step down for a moment, not to quit. You've done a very good job. I know you think you are protecting her from being fooled, being bamboozled, being led down some ridiculous path that isn't true. And you've done a great job, but just stand down for a moment so I can Mm. talk, talk Mm. to her heart. And uh, um, it was wonderful. And I said, wait a minute, I, you're talking about my mind and I have a vote and I I agree. Stand (laughs) down. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's like, you know, I felt like my mind was like one of those Japanese soldiers who kept fighting after the, Mm. after the armistice was declared, you know, so... After the experience of spending several years in his company, um, some major things happened to me that I describe in the book, one, one of which was that I have arrived at the point where I can watch my mind doing its questioning, doing its skeptic, skeptical number, and I can somehow sink below it and to this, this underground flow of heart that uh, is just about love. And about being, yeah. and is not about thinking, and that's really you know you can't get anywhere through your mind because your mind can always find flaws in any mm. anything, but mm. the real road to to, I, to for me, which is the Bhakti road that Ramdas follows, is is through the heart.
0: Hmm. I, you know, that's the answer that you dream about, really. Cause it's <laughs> yeah. all in there. There's a drop in the
2: ocean of consciousness. Like well, awesome I, I still don't like the notion of the drop no, in the ocean. It's, it's, but, yeah.
0: but the way he suffused it, or the way that his darshan, if you like, because mm-hmm. you get that in the book a lot. The, yeah. the two of you together, no matter what you came up with, to sort of, you know, say, well, hey, what's this really about?
2: Yeah, and there was he just so have... much love between us. Yeah. I. You know, his wife used to tell me, I'm so glad you're doing this because he's always in a better mood after you come. (laughs) (laughs) Because no matter how frustrated or confused or concerned or worried either of us was, we would sit down and after five or ten minutes, we would just enter into the space of just love. Mm. I felt so loved by him. And he... Uh, loved me and loved my being there. And he said to me at one point, he was looking across, we sat in two chairs facing each other, and he said, Sarala, who says that people only make love with their bodies? Mm. And I just want to talk Mm. about the other thing that, that really was important that happened to me during those two years, and that's I started out really being terrified of the end because I did not have... I had never heard any description of an afterlife that I could believe in or say or that struck me, that struck a chord and says, Oh yes, that must that's what happens. You know, when people talk about the Bardos or about reincarnation, I, I, I'm not there with them. I hear it and it's interesting, but it's not it doesn't resonate in me. And I had a terrific fear that when it's over, it's over. And the idea of nothingness, of absolute nothingness, was so terrifying that I couldn't even face it. You know, I would I I would immediately carry him off in another direction whenever there was a moment when I, you know, like when you I was in a car accident and luckily nothing, not injured. But you saw in that moment how fragile our life is and how at any second, unexpected, it could be over. Um, I I don't carry that with me all the time. None of us do. I think it was. Um, I read someone who said that the the mind can't conceive, it can't conceptualize its own end, its demise. It's not physically possible for the mind to do that. So, since I had no certainty that anything continues after this life, I was terrified at the idea of death. Uh, And spending all Reb Zalman was absolutely certain that, as he put it. Something continues. He had many ideas about what it was and many books he'd read that had descriptions that meant something to him but that didn't mean anything to me. But he was absolutely certain, without a doubt, that something continues. And he said to me, he knew how I felt, and he said to me at the beginning, I don't want to convince you of anything. I just want to open your mind a little bit, relax your mind. And somehow, during the two years of spending every Friday with him for an hour or two, uh, something changed in me. And the way it, way I became aware of it was um, I developed uh, vertigo, which I'm still struggling with, uh, intense dizziness. And I went to, because I live in Boulder, I went to an energy healer that I really had had some wonderful experiences with to see if he could help, because the doctors and the physical therapists weren't helping. And I was lying on his table, and he was feeling my energy, put his hands were on my head. And all of a sudden, I heard in my head, it's all right to die. Not that it's going to happen right now, but when it does happen, it's not going to be something terrible or fearsome. It'll be okay. Now, I had never heard anything like that inside myself. And what came to me was a memory of a movie I once saw as a child that somehow stayed with me. It was in black and white. And in it, a woman was dying, and a man was sitting beside her, and he was trying to console her. And he told her that dying would be like being in a sleigh in winter in the steppes of Russia, wrapped in warm furs, with horses moving along and bells ringing. And in the distance, there would be some welcoming lights. And you're all warm and you're traveling toward those lights. And I actually saw it after I heard that death would be okay, that 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 was the image that came to me of being wrapped in warmth and heading towards some welcoming lights. And I told the energy healer what I had just heard, and I said, you know, a lot of times you have an epiphany or an experience, and then three days later you're telling somebody about it, and you realize it's now a story. It's not an experience. It's not real. It's a story I'm telling. And I said, is this just going to become a story? And he said, are you asking me if it has a shelf life? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, yeah, I guess I am. And he says, I guess we'll have to see Well, I want to tell you that I still can access Mm. that place where I hear that it's going to be okay.
1: Now, now the rabbi did pass away. And was that before the book came out?
2: No, happily, the book came out. He was able to do an event in Boulder. So many people came. They had to open another room. I mean, because people knew it might be his last appearance. Um, he. We also did some Skyping. I, I went around the, to various cities and did readings, and he was there by Skype. And he was. we did uh, uh, something for NPR, we did something for PBS, and he loved it. He mm. was so grateful and so happy because he felt that this was an important message to get out, that we need to prepare, that we need to do this work, and at any age, even as a teenager, the kind of things he suggested for the for the end for the end game were things. Every time he told me, "Here's something that's important to me to do now," I would say, "I don't want to wait till I'm 80. I want to do it now." Like forgiveness. Forgiveness mm. was a big part of the work. I I don't want I don't want to go on carrying any grudges against anybody or being angry. Mm. And so he felt the work was important. The And he said, none of my rebbees, none of my mentors ever talked about this period of life. And he felt it was really important to get the message out. So he was very pleased. And then um, just two months after the book came out, he was actually in Connecticut for a retreat that he'd always gone to. And even though he had stopped traveling, he decided he could handle going there. He collapsed with pneumonia. He was taken to and rushed to the emergency room, he had a heart condition. He had so many problems. He had a uh, he had a lung problem. He had cancer in both and in one of his eyes, and the pneumonia triggered everything. And his systems just started to fail, and everybody was concerned. Everybody that loved him and knew him that you know this might be the end. And he was in Connecticut, and he finally was stable enough. And his friends raised the money to get an emergency flight to bring him back to boulder into the hospital there and then he started to get better and then he was after 10 days he was cleared to go home and his wife started writing a blog because everybody wanted to know how he was doing and she said he was getting stronger every day and and he was to the very end he was alert mentally his mind was peak sharp condition Uh, But then one morning after, uh, 10 days later, it was the day before the 4th of July, um, she woke up early and saw that he was breathing in a very shallow way and she kind of nudged him and said, Reb Zalman, can you wake up and take three deep breaths? And he took some very shallow breaths and then there was, it stopped. And the funeral was held on the 4th of July, the next day. You know, in Jewish tradition, you bury somebody immediately. But he had been very clear about how how he wanted to be buried. He did not want to be put in a wooden casket. He wanted to just be wrapped in his father's prayer shawl and in a white shroud and put right into the earth, Um as he was, and they had found just the week before a local funeral home that would allow that, because most of them don't. You have to have cement and all this stuff, so there's no contamination, but there was one funeral home that would allow that. And so he was, uh, and he also, he had been to Auschwitz where his whole family, except for his immediate nuclear family, had perished, and he'd brought some ashes back from Auschwitz. And he wanted the ashes buried with him to honor the millions who hadn't received a, a proper respectful burial. So his wishes were carried out, and it was just an amazing experience to actually, because everybody who came, and there were hundreds of us, took turns, as the tradition is, shoveling dirt onto the body, And you could see the body. I mean, you could see where the head was and the feet, and it was, it it was, it made it very real and powerful, and, and, uh, I'll never forget it. Mm.
1: Hmm. Wow. So, do you feel any ongoing connection with him, or is it through these stories, or do you, have you ever had the, Thoughts of him in a dream or, well, no, or anything? Well, no, but
2: when I'm really in a low mood, I call on him. Mm. I don't know if he's there or if he yeah. hears, but I I can recreate his energy.
1: Yeah, and you remember the part of yourself that connected with him at, yeah. a, at a minimum. Yeah. And I can
2: feel his energy, and I can feel him saying things. And I, I mm. can hear him saying some of the things he said. And in fact, he asked me before he died, is there something of mine you would like? Because he wanted to give things of his to mm. people he was close to. And I thought about it, and I said, I would really like one of your prayer shawls. He invented a new kind of prayer shawls that he called the rainbow talit. And uh, it had it was a coat of many colors that was big. He thought that the traditional talits or prayer shawls that Jews wear, he called them bikinis. They were thin. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't cover much. He wanted to be enfolded. Mm. And I said, I would love, I knew he had a number of them. I'd love one of your prayer shawls. So... After he died, I got one. And sometimes I will wrap myself in it Mm -hmm. in the morning and say the morning prayer that all Jews say, which is called modei ani, grateful am I, thankful am I for the gift of another day.
1: I just want to pivot the conversation to another place. (laughs) And one of the things that always strikes me in this new age Buddhist Hindu bhakti world that, that we're, in different ways, part of, is how many of the people uh, were born Jews? Ram Das, Krishna Das, Bernie Glassman, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg. You, you go down the list, It's they're not 100% people that were born <laughs> Jewish, but way more than half.
2: And more that, than their percentage in
1: the population. Wildly more than their mm-hmm. percentage, like 10 or 20 or 30 times more. And uh, I'm wondering, did you ever develop any theory? Is this a post-Holocaust phenomenon where, where people that were born Jewish just needed other ways to connect with God and, and there were not enough uh, J- Jewish renewal places to connect? Or What what do you make of that uh, s- it's, it's, situation? It's very David, I'm curious yeah. if you've thought about this, too. I mean, you know all of them, and they all <laughs> were born Jews, weren't they?
0: Yeah, I, I think that the ones that I know You know, Ramdas Krishnadas, those people.
2: And by the way, Reb uh, Reb Zalman was very close to Ramdas. They often did lectures together and things.
0: Mm. Well, I think I think that there, first first of all, there's a tremendous intellectual heritage of analysis, pulling things apart, putting them back together, within families. I know there was within mine, and therefore, a kind of built-in either total allegiance to it or skepticism about it, which is great to be skeptical, but it hurts. And I think that it hurts because you're not getting the, the solve, you're not getting the tonic all the time. And I think that Jewish people have a heritage of both a, a great, loving, familial thing going on, but at the same time, a hole, a hole caused by intelligence. And I think that, that, that hole was kind of filled by the concept of, of, a, of a guru or, or something that you just had to be next to. Because this is what Krishna says all the time. If I didn't chant, I'd just mope around all the time. Mm. I'm a moper. I'm a terrible, depressed person who will just watch the New York Giants, which makes you depressed. Well, they and, did win yesterday <laughs> as, we, did.
1: as we record <laughs> they, this. They, they did they, win,
0: yeah. They beat but, the Cowboys. They did, thank goodness. But, but I, I think that that, for me at any rate, I mean, my father was a Gurdjieff scholar. so I, Not a scholar, but a follower. So I did have that kind of mystical thing. But I was left in the, I mean, I was in the lurch, whatever that means. I didn't know what to do. So when somebody as brilliant as Dr. Leary or Dr. Alpert came along with all the prowess they had and all the intellectual strength they had and said, this is something you should check, I believed them. Hmm. And and so that was my story. But I think a lot of Jewish people, Hindus, have a similar kind of tale behind them. Like
1: and why I mean. were they not able to find it in synagogues that they their families were part of. I mean many did find it, but no, thousands and it was thousands of Because didn't.
2: Judaism was frozen mm. after the Holocaust. Right. Mm. Judaism thought it had to be the religion of rationalism. You know, that all of that mystic faith, how could you continue right. in that line when the Holocaust had happened? Right. It had yes. to be about humanitarian things. Right. And all so so the Judaism I grew up with and I had to go I was forced to go to Sunday school, which was torture. Um, it, it was. It was. A, there was a social caste system, and I was at the bottom of it, and I was teased and called names, and it was a horrible experience. And I remember on our retreat right before I was confirmed, the girls did not get a bat mitzvah then. That wasn't until much later. Mm-hmm. So what? It wasn't offering us any spiritual um, nourishment. Mm-hmm. It was rote. It was sitting, you know, in boring services. So there, it, we couldn't find it there. If I could find it there, I would have been there. Yeah, yeah. So we had to look elsewhere, and where we looked was to the east. But I love what you said about the intellectual, the intellect creating a whole. Mm. Um, the other thing about Judaism, in which which is inculcated in it, is the notion of tikkun olam, repairing mm. the world. Uh, which Mm. is very strong in Jewish culture, that we don't have to fix the whole world. We do have to do our part. I know you've said this often, Mm. do one's part. So that was part of our upbringing. Uh, um, But again, we couldn't find it in Judaism. We found it in in the political movements of the time, Mm. the anti-Vietnam War movement, civil rights movement. So nothing was tying us or giving us any sense that what we longed for could be found in Judaism. Now, it's interesting because in promoting this book, I talked at a number of Jewish uh, congregations, including the one where I was confirmed and that I hated so much, and it was unrecognizable. Mm. Now, they they encourage all the things that Reb Zalman fought for, meditation, they have yoga they have uh they now have aging and saging groups that one of his his most one of his most wonderful books was called From Aging to Saging. It's a classic and they now have saging groups. All the things he did that were considered radical in the 60s and 70s are now mainstream. Mm. So, I think that was part of the reason that so many young Jews went to the East. It's yeah. certainly why I went right.
1: there. Right, right. So, one final thing, a parallel conversation I wanted to have before we part ways into Manhattan today is you are a citizen of the state of Colorado, which is uh, ground zero for uh, marijuana legalization. And it's certainly a trend that is uh, accelerating greatly. A recent poll said 58% of Americans want it legal. It's de facto legal in a lot of places, like California, for example, where I've spent a lot of time the last few years. Uh, it's just a, the, the idea of a getting a prescription is pretty much a formality in you know you can go and get what you want and part of the Ramdas narrative to me when I first heard him was it was sort of an alternative to drugs is that the idea that that he would talk about getting high and coming down mm-hmm. and that he didn't want an experience that he was always going to come down from and so i interpreted that at that time as sort of pulling away from drugs. I was quite a druggie as a teenager, and, and I still, I never became a 12-step person, but I did have several decades where I really didn't do anything. And I find that for a lot of my friends, it's, our 60s and 70s, who grew up at that time, there is kind of a renaissance of the utility of of (laughs) marijuana. It's now the criminal element is rapidly going away. It's still a great sin of the country, I think, that there are hundreds of thousands of people in jail for doing something that we've done and that our last three presidents have done and that most of the CEOs have done. But putting aside the political struggle, which has to play itself out, what what are, what are your thoughts about the balance between the kind of spirituality you were talking about and and uh, marijuana now becoming kind of a normalized option?
2: Well, you know, Ramdas himself has gone back and forth about marijuana. Right. You know, in, uh, at the beginning of his spiritual awakening, he very much felt that it was if not cheating somehow it was it the real it wasn't the real thing it right. was a taste of it but it wasn't the real thing right. the real thing was gained through meditation and and service and bhakti and all these qualities but you know we also found that that has its highs and lows it doesn't take mm. you to a permanent place right. of of, of peace and joy and enlightenment mm. and then later when i later interviewed him for a a profile i wrote in the new york times right after he'd had his stroke um, he was using medical marijuana and loving it. And I posed that question mm. to him. I yeah, said, yeah. you know, uh, it, it, he he said, well, he said, uh, you know, meditation is great, but pot is faster. <laughs> 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 you know, it, you take two tokes and you can be in oneness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then when he got very sick and he landed in Hawaii, he does not smoke at all now. So he, I don't, uh, at least i don't know what right. the, what this moment his attitude is it is toward it uh for myself um i went to berkeley in the 60s it was a rite of passage yeah, yeah. Uh, you know i have you tried it i want to turn you on you got to try this great new thing and nobody was drinking alcohol and marijuana became my drug of choice and i never stopped uh using it but i never imagined that one day Every neighborhood where I lived would have a dispensary where anybody could walk in and have this smorgasbord they could buy. Mm.
0: Oh, so jealous. I,
2: I I just, in fact, um, one of my friends says, isn't it wonderful growing older and bolder?
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know,
2: where, where else can you go eat a marijuana cookie and then go to the opera? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh. so it's thrilling, but I'm also interested in the medical aspects mm. of it, and, and I'm hoping to write uh, a book about... The legalization, and and finally, we're going to get to find out: does it legitimate some real
1: research, some yes. real information away from all the uh, propaganda and
2: yeah, superstition, and
1: the, yeah, you
2: know, and the anecdotes. Yeah, um, I, we'll, we'll be able to get some hard research and see is there anything to this? And so I'm very very excited and so grateful mm. that this happened in our lifetimes. Mm. Yeah, I, I yeah. would never have predicted it.
1: David, you have any thoughts on the subject before we come? to an end.
0: I love pot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to urge everyone to become more familiar with Sarah Davidson's writing. It's it's a rich variety of things. Is there a website people can go to?
2: Absolutely. sarahdavidson.com, no s in sarah. And if you buy the December project and it's it's always on sale on Amazon. Yeah. You also will get as a free bonus an MP3 that I recorded of Reb Zalman shortly oh. before he died, mm. uh, where we talk and he sings, and then he leads a meditation at the end about letting go, and it's such a beautiful meditation. He was asked for someone who was collecting, was making a CD called "Grateful Passages," for people who were facing a terminal illness, or or relatives and friends of someone in that position where it was imminent, uh, and and. They wanted. They asked various people to make recordings that might be of solace to people in this position. So they asked Reb Zalman, and he lay down, and he imagined that this was his last moments. And something came out of him uh, 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 that was so gorgeous. And he he recites it on this MP3, which you can download for free if you buy the December Project, and then you can play it. It's only two and a half minutes and go to that beautiful place.
1: I'm going to do this this very afternoon. I had a hard <laughs> copy of the book. There's some <laughs> virtues of digital products, besides convenience. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, David, so much. It's a magic thing for the three of us have never had a conversation like this before. Yeah. No, not recorded known anyway. Each other but any it's very you, special. Thanks to okay. David and Danny. All right I
2: love you both.
1: And you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. We appreciate your support and hope you will continue
0: that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com danny.